the government decided instead of spending $50 million on housing or, I don't know, vaccinating people, that they'd give a $50 million handout to fracking corporations, which has led to this inquiry process. Your employers, they're not going to do it perfectly and some of them aren't going to do the right thing. Mm. And so that's why we need people on the floor who are aware of their rights. After you win that election, it's such an overwhelming feeling of accomplishment because of all the hurdles and, and, the, and the roadblocks you had to go through to win that. And now you're left with trying to achieve a first contract. So there's a whole anti-union strategy just to delay that as well by the company side and their anti-union consultants. For the first time in the history of social struggles in Colombia, the National Strike Committee has been able to define an agenda and form a part of a public conversation. We are now able to talk about issues that matter to workers and the average people in Colombia. And I know there are some people that have been very cynical about Occupy, what did it accomplish? I think when we look backwards in a couple of years, we're going to say it really was a starting point in a deep way for a lot of things that are happening now. One middle-aged bystander who saw kids beaten to death said that he fought in the Vietnam War and killed Viet Cong. But even the notoriously brutal South Korean troops in Vietnam hadn't been this cruel. Even though we seem to be swimming in a sea of negativity these days, critics and the Monday slang are nothing new. Welcome to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from some of the more than 130 shows that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. On this week's show, we'll hear from Stick Together, Red Dead Redemption, Activate Live, the Solidarity Center podcast for labored working class history and grit Northwest. From the Stick Together podcast, a report on the fracking in the Northern Territory boondoggle in which the government spent $50 million to create a handful of jobs. On Red Dead Redemption, one of our new network shows, this one out of Auckland, Host Justine Sachs answers people's work woes about COVID now that they're in level three. On Activate Live, Machinist Organizing Director Vinny Adeo discusses the PRO Act. From the Solidarity Center podcast, Francisco Maltes, president of the Unitary Workers Center, the largest union confederation in Colombia, discusses a major victory against state oppression with a diverse coalition. The Belabored Podcast marks the 10-year anniversary of the Occupy movement with Stephen Lerner and Jonathan Weston on what Occupy meant to labor then and now and how it's changed organizing. From Working Class History, the first part of their podcast miniseries about the May 18, 1980 uprising in Gwangju, South Korea against the U.S.-backed military dictatorship. And we wrap up with Grit Northwest host Joe Cadwell offering his take on critics. I'm Chris Garlock for the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. G'day, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, the only national program focusing on union news, workers' stories and social justice issues. A little look at the fracking situation in the Northern Territory, part of the Federal Government's gas lead recovery, but at what cost? 
We hear from Edie Shepherd, a Get Up campaigner. The main campaigns that we put heaps of time and energy and effort into in terms of organising capacity building, resource and that sort of stuff is fracking in the Northern Territory. So at the moment, oil and gas corporations have licences over 70% of the Northern Territory, which is an unbelievable amount of country and an unbelievable amount of landmass. And for over 10 years, traditional owners ride across the territory. So the Beetaloo Basin in particular is bigger than Sydney. And we have a particular corporation that has a license that is literally twice the size of Tasmania. But for 10 years, traditional owners have been saying, no, we don't want this. You have no consent. There is no free prior and informed consent. And we have conservative governments from both major parties who are pretty wedded to gas as an idea. I don't campaign on the climate, I campaign on consent. And traditional owners across the NT have repeatedly and persistently for 10 years said no because they were not told of what the process would take. It's quite a violent process. They drill over two kilometres into the earth and pump it full of chemicals that have been known to cause cancer to basically explode the rock underground to suck out gas. And the particularly scary thing about the Northern Territory is it's quite a dry place, right? It's pretty dry. So 90% of the territory like relies on underground bore water and it's one big aquifer. And if they drill down and there's one spill, that's it for water across the territory. Without water, there is no survival. Like it's, it's actually mind boggling that this is something that anyone is persisting with in a process that has been banned in multiple places, including states here on this continent. There's currently an inquiry happening into hydraulic fracturing. The government decided, I don't know, instead of spending $50 million on housing or, I don't know, vaccinating people, that they'd give a $50 million handout to fracking corporations, which has led to this inquiry process. And one of the main things that has come out is that there aren't jobs in it. Like it's maximum a couple of hundred jobs. And when we look at the major frackers like Origin Energy, they have 7,000 staff members and under a hundred of them are Aboriginal. So it's actually, a, it's a myth, right? It's a different playing field in the Northern Territory to say the Pilbara in Western Australia, where I was uh, a few weeks ago, I was up in the Pilbara. And this is what I mean when I say that I'm not a climate campaigner, I'm a consent campaigner. I was up there, we were talking about cultural heritage and there is, there's heavy industry up there and you have the conversation and mostly because it's like, I'm curious. I live in Melbourne on the East Coast. I'm a bit of a like, spoiled brat in that sense and they're like no it's not that we're against mining because it gives us our jobs it means that I can have my car it keeps my lights on that sort of stuff I'm not going to demonize anyone for doing what they need to do to survive under capitalism I will demonize fracking in the northern territory though because there is no consent and there is no jobs in it it just it doesn't stack up that's it from stick together this week you can catch up with the show at 3cr.org.au or where you get your favorite podcasts Contact us at sticktogether at 3cr.org.au. I'm Annie McLaughlin. Join the Stick Together team next week for more workers' news. And remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. And stick together.
Bard's No Masters Only Helpful Advice. It's Red Dead Redemption with Auckland Union Representative Justine Sachs. Morena, Justine, how are you today? Morena, Rachel, I'm as good as can be. How yep. are you? Oh, much the same. It is a bit of a level four mood at the moment, but we're doing well. We're doing well yep. here. Uh, yep. And we've got some questions for you that have come in from the listeners across the last week here at BFM, and I think we should just dive into the first one. We've got this morning is from someone who says, I work in hospo. Last lockdown, the cafe where I work was, in my op- opinion, far too lax about level three. I'm feeling really nervous about when we eventually move into level three, what it's going to be like at work, but I need to work there for the money, and I don't see how I can find a new job given the lockdowns. What's some advice for this person? I'm sure there's a lot of people probably in a similar boat at the moment i i wonder if this person would be willing to take on the role of a health and safety representative because if elected into that role there are certain powers essentially that you have and so one of the things that you could firstly i'm not sure you would be able to get training under level three but firstly if you feel that the work going on is you know not safe or is a breach of your health and safety at level three, you can actually make um, a formal recommendation to your employer and say, this actually needs to improve or I um, will have to call WorkSafe. So WorkSafe kind of deals with enforcing health and safety laws, that makes sense. So you can do that in an informal way. You could call WorkSafe regardless if you're not a health and safety rep and just say, this is what's happening, stress. But uh, yeah, I really would recommend for people who feel nervous is like, where is the health and safety rep? Because they should be playing role in keeping you safe in these. It's not your em- employers. They're not going to do it perfectly and some of them aren't going to do the right thing. Mm. And so that's why we need people on the floor who are aware of their rights and able to stand up for stand up for them and health and safety power under the health and safety legislation so they can do that. So I know that might not sound very helpful to this person, but yes, being a health and safety rep would be really helpful in terms of keeping yourself safe. In terms of if there's a breach, right, of level three at your workplace, I think people should remember that you can literally say this is unsafe work and we're not going to put ourselves in that situation. Mm. Or you can actually say that to your boss. You're entitled to do that. If there's an imminent, like, if you feel that you are, if your health and safety are threatened, you can cease unsafe work. Ideally, a health and safety rep should be there to guide that. But yeah, so I would really, I think the stakes are high, right? They are, yeah. In these situations, yeah. And I, so I think... We have to be really brave, actually, workers who come back to work at Level 3 and just to just make sure to keep themselves safe and to keep members of the public safe because this is exactly how COVID will spread. I did want to ask you, Justine, bouncing off this question and remembering a lot of questions we got sent in last time we shifted into Level 3. Mm. When people are coming up with misinformation around COVID at work or with perhaps colleagues or employers who um, don't necessarily see the the importance of, of masking or sanitising or even, you know, still out there COVID denial. If people are coming up against that at work, how should they be dealing with that? Because I know that puts people in an extremely stressful position and it's a dangerous thing to do. What would be your advice around that for anyone who's concerned? The main thing is we can't, unfortunately we can't stop people from talking about these things. I think you could definitely say, actually, that's not an appropriate thing to talk about at work. But in terms of taking safety precautions, whether they believe in it or not, under the health and safety legislation, they actually have to. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something to communicate to them. Uh, okay, that's nice. That's your opinion. You still have to wear your mask, though. So that's the law. 
that's just health and safety law and that's that. So maybe just shut, actually just shut that down completely, not yeah. engaging in the debate and just being like, that's nice, you can believe that, but here's what you have to do anyways. And I really feel for people who work for employers who, who hold those kind of opinions because that is difficult. But I think a lot of it comes down to feeling empowered to stand up for yourself. And I always think that is easier to give us so if you can do it with a group of workers yeah in a union ideally <laughs> but if not <laughs> and uh, this feels like a good juncture to ask if people want to find out where their union what their union is if they're thinking about this might be the time to unionize where do they go to uh, work that out justine oh that is so, such a good question i love that question um, <laughs> so. i know you do <laughs> Okay, give me, I'll get you the URL. Yep. So you can go on union.org.nz slash find dash your dash union. Easy <laughs> as, easy as. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much for answering those questions, Justine. And uh, I My hope pleasure. you take care in lockdown and we'll talk to you again very soon. You too. All right. Cheers, Rich. Bye. Yeah. Take that, the man. Red Dead Redemption with Auckland Union Representative Justine Sachs. You see, everyone's entitled to be treated with dignity. And that's what the labor union is all about, dignity. Provides dignity for people. The president sharing a quote from his father about labor unions. Coming up, we'll break down the Protecting the Right to Organize Act on a special edition of Activate Live. Activate your voice and viva the voice. Speak up, speak out, get involved. Engage-toi. Take action. We're, we're union and we're, we're proud. Welcome to this special edition of Activate Live and happy Hispanic Heritage Month, which begins today, along with Yom Kippur. I'm Tanya Hutchins with the Machinist Union. Today, we're breaking down the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, better known as the PRO Act, as part of our Month of Labor, why talk about labor for just one day when it could be an entire month? Now, you may have seen IAM General Vice President Gary Allen's op-ed in the Arizona Capital Times urging the state senators to co-sponsor the PRO Act because it will remove the many obstacles keeping workers from their right to join unions. Our guest today is IAM Organizing Director Vinny Adio, who has been with the union since 1980 and Director of Organizing since 2018. Thanks for being here physically distanced, Vinny. Thank you. Appreciate it, Tanya. Again, thank you always for inviting me on this Activate Live show to contribute any way I can. There's a worker that we have a quote from that we can put up on the screen. And the worker is Sean Reed. And he says the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, legislation that passed the House of Representatives and is currently stalled in the Senate, would immediately jumpstart negotiations such as ours by providing first contract arbitration. How important is this? Again, in organizing, the actually organizing campaign is not completed realistically from my perspective until we reach a first contract, first collective bargaining agreement. Because getting the support from the workers, going through the anti-union campaign, overcoming this anti-union campaign is real. It's overwhelming for workers. You have to ask yourself sometimes, would you put yourself out there and jeopardize your job for the chance to have a union or the chance to support your coworkers who are trying to 
organized. Well, I don't take that for granted for one second, what these workers do. That's why uh, we take this very seriously. But getting back to my original point, after you win that election, it's such an overwhelming feeling of accomplishment because of all the hurdles and, and, the, and the roadblocks you had to go through to win that. And now you're left with trying to achieve a first contract. So there's a whole anti-union strategy just to delay that as well by the company side and their anti-union consultants who they pay millions of dollars to. And again, the Protecting the Right to Organize Act has language in there incorporated into there to grant 90-day arbitration and mediation for a first contract mandatory that will impose a two-year contract onto the workers, which brings the company to the table in good faith and forces them to organ or forces them to negotiate in good faith with the union. Let me back it up a little bit when you go into like the voting process because there are a number of ways that, that you can vote. You can vote in person, you can vote by mail. Would this help to make it easier for the workers who are organizing to have different ways of voting as well? Again, the currently in organizing any delay which the company uh, strategy is always to delay, is in favor of the company. It gives the company more time to carry out their anti-union anti campaign to, again, insert fear and intimidation into the workplace. It means a loss for us. So, again, the uh, legislation allows us to speed up the election process, divert these delay tactics by the company until after the election. It also... Um, allows the union to choose in which way, well, the workers, per se, to choose which way they want to have an election. When they want to have it an in-person election, where they go to an actual ballot box, or during a pandemic, the National Labor Relations Board has resorted to, because of the COVID-19, is to resort to mail ballot elections, which we've seen a lot in the last year and a half during the COVID-19 pandemic. So these are options for the workers to choose whether they choose to have a mail ballot election or an in-person election. And again, it gives choices to the workers, to who the people, the workers are the ones who choose to have a union, not the union and not the company. And this legislation gives these workers the support and the empowerment to get that done. Thank you for coming in here and breaking it all down for us. We appreciate it and we're hoping that everyone makes those calls, makes those emails and visits their senators because this should be good news for every worker if we can get this passed. Absolutely. As workers, if we as workers can get this The passed. time has come, we need change. And this is, this is a long way to change. And I'm just hoping we don't miss this opportunity. This, again, as I mentioned before, we have a key uh, opportunity right now and we gotta take advantage of it. All right, thank you so much for joining us. It's Vinny. my pleasure. That was Vinny Adio, our IAM Organizing Director here at the Machinist Union. Hello, sisters and brothers, and welcome to the Solidarity Center podcast, an interview show that highlights and celebrates the individuals working for labor rights, the freedom to form unions, and democracy across the globe. I'm your host, Shauna Bader-Blau. I'm also the executive director of the Solidarity Center in Washington, D.C. My guest today is someone who has spent his life on the front lines with workers, fighting for good jobs and a society that treats everyone with fairness. Francisco Maltez is president of the CUT, the Unitary Workers Center, the largest trade union confederation in Colombia. Francisco Maltese, president of CUT Colombia, welcome to the podcast. Muchas gracias, muy amables por la invitación. 
It's so wonderful to talk with you today. Can you tell me about this bill that the government is presenting that's going to raise taxes on basic goods and consumption and services, even pensions, and that it's not going to benefit average Colombians who are living in high rates of poverty and unemployment? Can you tell me about that moment when the coup determined and knew that it needed to lead this movement on the street to fight that tax reform? The straw that broke the camel's back was a proposed tax reform that seeked to tax wages, pensions, utilities, computers, internet, and 90% of the revenue from these proposed tax changes would have come from wages, pensions, and consumption, where the mega-rich would only have contributed 10% of the revenue. And the union movement and CUT have had an important role to play in this. The CUT and workers are, of course, the backbone of these uh, strikes and of this movement. But I understand also that this movement has expanded. Can you tell us about the coalition that has come out to join you in protest? Colombia has formed a national strike committee that has a presence in all of Colombia's departments and many of its municipalities. So it truly is a national organization. It includes 59 social organizations and is made up of workers, retired workers, all indigenous groups that are present in Colombia, rural workers, farm workers, the LGBT community, environmentalists, women's committees. What I wanted to underline is, has been the participation of young people um, who have been able to join the National Strike Committee, both students who have yet to go to the university and college students. These young people have six seats set aside among 60 on the committee. And another effort has been outreach to young people who are neither in school nor working because of failures of the government. We've tried to incorporate them uh, into our movement so that they can be organized and fight more effectively. And so we would like to work with them so that towards addressing all of our social struggles for as long as the Duque government remains in power. What has been gained, Brother Francisco, in the movement so far? There have been both tangible and intangible achievements. What's been tangible is that we were able to do away with the worst tax reform proposal that had ever been seen in Colombia. We were able to get rid of a tax minister who was... Uh, arrogant and linked to corruption. We were able to stop um, Congressional Bill Number 10, which would have essentially done away with public health in Colombia. And we were able to get rid of the foreign secretary who went all over the world denying what was happening in Colombia. The strike also was able to get rid of the police chief in El Valle, who was among the police leaders who had, was responsible for the most violent repression. So those are important achievements. We've made people understand that taxes are an important issue for both um, person, their personal lives and the life of the nation.
Another intangible achievement has been solidifying the notion that social movements have as their goal acting peacefully and that our goals are achieved through unity and through peaceful mobilization. And so those are some of the tangible and intangible achievements that have made it so that the social movement in Colombia can be neatly divided now into two different eras. Thank you so much for joining us today for those inspiring words. I'm Shauna Bader-Blau. Thanks for listening. You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belabored episode 230. This is the first installment in our two-part series on Occupy Wall Street 10 years on in conjunction with the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation. We are spending the bulk of our show talking about Occupy and its influence on the labor movement with some people who were there and who have tried to apply some of those lessons to their organizing since. This week, we are joined by Jonathan Weston, director of New York Communities for Change, and Stephen Lerner, who's an organizer and bargaining for the common good fellow at Georgetown University's Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor. What were sort of the labor movement's reactions and attempts to Occupy? I don't know. It was interesting because if we want to be honest about what Occupy was, it was definitely not my members that were down there sleeping in the park. And my members are mostly older Black and Latino immigrants, folks from outer borough communities in New York City. I think there was a bit of skepticism in that, what is this and who are these people? But there was, it was an easy transition to, they're going after these folks that are responsible for the current foreclosure crisis and the current housing crisis that connected for our folks. And I think that's one of the, the big differences to a lot of kind of leftist protest movements, et cetera, is that the connections were able to be made across the board on these are people that crashed the economy and like, this is what we're protesting. Because the effects of the crash were being felt by people like daily. They understood that the people that were rebuilding out of the crash of 2008, 2009 were the wealthy and the well-connected and Wall Street. The one thing that reminded me of is when we had a march where we did a tour of the richest people in New York. And the resonance of We Are 99% felt so real as you're marching up Park Avenue by Steve Schwartzman's house that I think this thing that Jonathan just hit is really important, which is for lots of union members, lots of other community group members, horizontalism, all that stuff, they didn't know what people were talking about. People at first were dismissive, then they were intrigued. Then a lot of unions felt when they needed to do something to be supportive. But what's to me, what's most interesting is how much the Occupy message has stayed years later, that unions have embraced a lot of the rhetoric about the super rich and all that. And it's almost like it, it snuck up on people, that it got in their DNA, it got in their bloodstream. And so that the impact was later, not initially, is a little bit of my reaction. Yeah, and you see that, I think you see a lot of the impacts of Occupy and how some of the really leftist union leaders and folk really emerged mm-hmm. in the post-Occupy world, whether it's the Chicago's Teachers Union and the big strike they did, and even their analysis on Wall Street and Capitol, to the LA teachers, to 
the Minneapolis SEIU and their approach to organizing. I think when we look back in history, in a couple more years, yeah. the number of people that are leading protest movements, working in unions, people who got radicalized, whose roots are occupied, I think will really surprise people. And I know there are some people that have been very cynical about Occupy. What did it accomplish? I think when we look backwards in a couple of years, we're going to say it really was a starting point in a deep way for a lot of things that are happening now. Yeah. So many more people have become radicalized because of Occupy and outgrowths of Occupy that there's a different level of antagonism against the elites and the power structures in this country. A lot more of us are you know, really willing to lean into and to challenge the corporate Democrat, you know, machine that exists right now. And I think that's a good thing. I just think as we go forward, that there is a crisis of capitalism, there's a crisis of the rise of the radical nationalists, ethno-nationalists around the world. And we have to, you're in London right now, there's more than anybody. And so I do think as we think going forward, that we have to not look at this just as a perspective of only if we get a few more votes in Michigan and Pennsylvania, everything will be fine. That there's a global phenomenon going on. And I think that's the other thing that's so much clearer than at the beginning of Occupy, the question of white supremacy, the question of how capitalism operates. And so I think if we think about this globally, if we think about all of that, it both is inspiring and gives hope. And it's also terrifying because if we don't do the right things and we don't organize on the scale and do all the stuff that Jonathan talked about earlier, then we actually know it's going to happen because we're seeing it all over the world with these horrible right wing nationalist governments taking over. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. In May 1980, workers and students in Gwangju, South Korea, rose up against the brutal US-backed dictatorship. They drove out murderous special forces troops, ran Gwangju collectively for several days, until eventually government forces retook the city. This is Working Class History. And welcome back to the Working Class History Podcast. In this episode, we're beginning a mini-series on the Gwangju Uprising of 1980, sometimes known as the 518 Uprising, due to it beginning on May the 18th. Though unsuccessful in achieving its goals at the time, it was a landmark event in the restoration of democracy and the establishment of workers' rights in South Korea. And it's a really inspiring story of courageous resistance and self-management of an entire city in the face of absolutely horrific state violence. On the 13th of May, large street demonstrations began in Seoul calling for an end to martial law. These spread to Gwangju the following day, when students from Chonam and Chosun universities took to the streets and bowed with riot police. On May 14th, 15th, 16th, for three days, we all gathered at the Munju University Plaza to demonstrate and to demand for a quicker transition to democracy. That was the beginning of the demonstrations. University students would gather at their respective schools to demand democracy or stand up against abusive acts squashing democracy. 
the government said that the National Assembly was going to meet to discuss lifting martial law and bringing in reforms. So activists were heartened by this. But then, from that afternoon, the government instead started rounding up dissidents en masse. In Seoul, most known democracy activists were rounded up. And at 11pm in Gwangju, police and intelligence agents raided the homes and arrested almost every known dissident, other than those who managed to evade officers and go into hiding. Shortly before midnight on the 18th of May, the government declared a state of emergency and announced that martial law would be extended to cover the whole country. On the morning of the 18th of May in Gwangju, riot police and paratroopers were everywhere. As well as security forces, Gwangju residents and students also began to take to the streets in protests at the escalating repression. That's when the conflict began. But the students just have their bare hands and the soldiers are armed with guns. So the students are being chased out and pushed around. So Jeonnam University and the student conflict there was the starting point. I arrived a bit late there and joined the demonstration. We protested until the 27th. Clashes spread through the city. In some places, riot police used tear gas to try to disperse demonstrators. Elsewhere, paratroopers rushed in, grabbed individual demonstrators and savagely beat them. As the violence of the security forces escalated, so did the resistance. Protesters began picking up rocks and pieces of wood to fight the soldiers and making petrol bombs. The Air Force soldiers would come and harass civilians. They would stop and capture people on the street and beat them. They'd make people kneel on the street and take their clothes off, and that's why we were demonstrating. By late afternoon, police and soldiers started beating people to death. Paratroopers picked up the bloodied bodies and threw them into trucks in piles. One middle-aged bystander who saw kids beaten to death said that he'd fought in the Vietnam War and killed Viet Cong. But even the notoriously brutal South Korean troops in Vietnam hadn't been this cruel. Even he reportedly shouted to bystanders, quote, we should kill all these bastards, referring to the paratroopers. Universities and colleges were shut down, but schools, factories and other workplaces remained open. But that day, more and more non-students began taking to the streets as well, particularly housewives and street vendors. And the paratroopers continued to become even more brutal. Anyone resisting arrest was bayoneted. Women in particular were stripped naked in the streets and kicked unconscious. And during the demonstrations on the 19th of May, one Air Force soldier was left behind. All of the people were out on the streets and this one soldier was isolated in a sea of people. The civilians began throwing rocks and overpowered the soldiers and he retreated, limping. At nightfall, the exhausted rebels who had escaped injury or death returned home and put on the news to see the events that day completely ignored. Meanwhile, the government called in more troops. The following day, the insurrection would dramatically escalate, and while many more would be killed by paratroopers, by the end of the 21st of May, the workers and residents of Gwangju had succeeded in liberating the city and driving out the police and the army. We'd like to thank all of our guests for speaking with us, as well as to Michael Choi for undertaking interviews in Gwangju, and Angela Lee, Jiminy Lee and the Hung Coalition, who helped with translation and dubbing. Huge th- and finally, thanks to you for listening. Catch you next time. Critics are everywhere. 
Sure, that's a bold statement, but I believe it to be true. Hardly a day goes by. You don't hear someone putting down someone else's views, achievements, or decisions. Case in point, I'm being critical of critics right now. For some reason, putting down others appeals to a lot of folks. Maybe it's because we feel threatened by the success of others, or maybe because others' triumphs make us feel insecure about our own shortcomings. Who knows? Whatever the reason, it seems like the breadth and width of criticism is reaching an all-time high. I think we can all agree upon and appreciate the difference between positive, constructive criticism that is offered to hone and refines one's skills, and hateful rhetoric with no clear objective other than to be rude or cruel. Sadly, a fear of criticism can hold many people back. Feeling vulnerable and targeted for wanting to do things differently, for trying something new, they simply don't even try. This fear can greatly limit and damage the morale, spirit, and productivity of a crew, a company, or even a union as strong as the UBC. It's a shame for sure, and even though we seem to be swimming in a sea of negativity these days, critics and the mud they sling are nothing new. In fact, April 23rd, 2021, marks the 111th anniversary of a memorable oration by a famous U.S. president presented to counter such criticisms. Known as the Citizen in the Republic speech, President Theodore Roosevelt delivered it outside the storied Sorbonne University in Paris, France, to the political and cultural elite of Europe, 900 students and over 2,000 ticket holders. There was a lot of skepticism of our fledgling nation at that time. As a country, our medal had yet to be tested on the world stage. The first great war was a few years away, and the second, decades more to come. We were a brash, upstart nation trying to define itself and establish its identity. The fact that a war of our own making saw brother pitted against brother and nearly tore us apart little more than a generation prior was in and of itself enough for mockery. Whatever our shortcomings were, our potential as a great nation was apparent. So perhaps out of fear, or perhaps out of envy, many of the old guard of Europe were happy to look down their collective noses at what we hoped to become. Roosevelt knew this and chose this time and place to address these criticisms head-on. He believed a man, or a nation for that matter, should not be judged by what they achieve, but what they try to do. That courage was the virtue that enabled this, and that ultimately the effort was what mattered most. This belief holds true today as much as it did back in 1910. I believe we can all try to be a little more accepting and understanding when meeting others who don't fit comfortably into our accepted norms. I also believe we should work hard every day to ensure our brothers and sisters strive to reach their fullest potential by making them feel safe to try and experience difficult challenges without the added fear of belittlement should they fail. Also known as the man in the arena speech, poets and politicians alike have quoted Roosevelt's famous words to inspire and motivate action in those who are faced by criticisms from naysayers and defeatists. I'll leave you with these immortal words as read by another great leader, President John F. Kennedy. Theodore Roosevelt once said, the credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, and spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best, if he wins, knows the thrills of high achievement, and if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat.
I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1947. That was the day workers at the International Harvester Plant in Louisville, Kentucky, had had enough. They had just rejected a pay scale lower than that of harvester workers elsewhere. In her recent article for Leo Weekly, historian Tony Gilpin refers to the lower pay as the Southern Differential. Harvester workers walked off the job in a 40-day strike. Black and white Louisville workers were united in a rare form of solidarity. International Harvester had had a long labor-hating history. Its forerunner had been the McCormick Reaper Works, the site that sparked the 1886 Haymarket incident in Chicago. Harvester had been able to keep the unions out until the farm equipment workers of the CIO finally organized there in 1941. And the FE followed Harvester as they attempted to escape to the union-free South. The FE successfully organized the new Louisville plant just two months before the strike. Workers learned quickly that they were paid much less making the same equipment as their brothers in Chicago, Indianapolis, and elsewhere. Gilpin adds that the FE literature forthrightly stated, quote, once the Negro and white workers were united, the low-wage system of the South would collapse. Workers pressed for their demands and appealed to area farmers for support. They stressed that farmers would not pay less for equipment simply because local workers were paid less. Black and white workers picketed together, ate together, and planned their strike together at their new union hall. Harvester initially tried to red bait FE leaders. When that failed, the company was forced to grant steep wage increases. Gilpin cites FE News, which reported, quote, two smashing victories in hand, one over International Harvester, the other over the Mason-Dixon low-wage line. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 130 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, including complete versions of the shows you heard today. You can also find them by using the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited by Mel Smith and Patrick Dixon, produced by me, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website, laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local labor radio podcast show.